Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, I am joined by Nishma Rob from Google, and we're going to be talking about all things technology, but not just technology, what the role of representation has in advertising and media, and what impact it has on society, because we all want to make positive changes to this world in which we live. So I love this episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. So here's my conversation with Nishma Rob. Nishma, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we were just talking about Mad Women, which I just think sounds like a brilliant place to start a conversation. Um, and it aired last night, didn't it? Um, what, uh, yeah, what was your favourite bit of the uh, episode last night? Well, it was an incredible show. And uh, as you say, it aired on Channel 4 last night, made by South Shore Productions, um, and inspired by the fact that Wackle, which is a community group of uh, female leaders in the advertising industry, is celebrating its centenary. But the show last night, I think, charts from around the 1970s forward, telling amazing stories of these women behind uh, some of our most loved ads. And, you know, from Shake and Vac to the incredible Levi's ad that starred Nick Kamen, which was a real turning point, I think, for, for advertising. And actually how probably one of the first advert adverts that was from a female gaze, where everything had been predominantly from a male gaze, which was kind of, it was definitely a turning point for looking at ads that then kind of followed it. But I think for me, one of the most interesting bits was actually there's a lovely, there's an incredible woman called Barbara Noakes in there, who is the genius behind the Levi's ad. And she talks about, actually her inspiration was seeing some guy had come into the laundrette just a week before. He was actually, you know, a trades guy and he'd come in on a Friday and literally had stripped off down to his boxes and had popped them all in the washing machine. She said it was a horribly grey day and he wasn't that attractive. <laughs> so she decided to use a little bit of creative licence when she cast Nick Kamen into a rather beautiful, sunny laundrette. But that sense of being able to play with your own observations and, and desires and interest and let that play out in an ad and how transformational that was for the brand. Amazing. That's brilliant, isn't it? I, I never knew she was behind that ad as well. So it just goes to show how important telling these stories are, isn't it, to you know, elevate the people, the creators that made it all happen. She's an absolute hidden gem in our industry. She's 80 years old. She's never been very public facing. Um, this is the first time she's come out and talked about her work. And she had so many stories, as did all of the women. The wonderful Carol Ray, who um, has been a real leader for a lot of our Wackle centenary celebrations and was the first woman in the UK to have a name above the door of an agency. So, you know, a real pioneer in terms of what she's done. But she was also when she was a lowly account exec, uh, the woman behind the infamous Shake and Vac ad. No you know, Shake and Vac and get the freshness yeah. back. I won't sing it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, as, as we, as you as you'll see in the, in the documentary, but also if you find out more about it, no one cared about the freshness of their carpets and no one wanted the brief in the agency. So they kind of chucked it to the junior and it took her 20 scripts to get that signed off by the brand, by the by the client, and then went on to be one of the most successful ads that that agency made. I, I love these stories, isn't it? Because isn't it, how, how often is it that so many of the greatest ads seem to have that sort of, it was rejected 300 times and <laughs> kind of thing. It's wonderful to hear yeah. that, isn't it? It's amazing to see, I mean, A, the persistence of the incredible women in that, in that are featured in the documentary and so many more that I could tell you about that I've met um, over the years that I've been part of Wackle. And it's such a privilege and honour because it is, on their shoulders that we stand on. But the not just the challenge they had in the workplace of being heard and seen and respected or even considered for the work and ideas they had, but actually they were pushing against societal norms and challenges. You know, I still have to remind people it wasn't, I think in the 1980s that women could get a mortgage in their own name 
And so actually to think about women in the advertising industry in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who were making work that really shaped the industry, it's pretty mind-blowing. It really is, isn't it? It really, really is. Now, I want to talk tech, obviously, because you currently work for Google, but you you started out in, in a very tech-related space as well, didn't you? T- tell me where you started your career. So I started my career in, uh, for anyone who's a Brit will know, this was a much-loved service called Teletext. So this was the analogue text service that sat behind ITV and Channel 4, so the rival to CFAX. Uh, and I have to say it was a very, very successful business in its own right, but also a very, very popular text service. It was the Google before Google. You know, it was how in those days, pre-digital TV, where there were 24-hour rolling news services or access to information that we have today, you know, you quite happily waited 20 minutes for the latest news update. That seemed real time. You know, I used to love that we used to talk about it as real time, but we knew just the, the kind of the lag of the technology and to get up to these physical transmitters, it was 20 minutes. But it's how people got the latest football scores, the share shares results, um, the movement on trying to get a cheap loan or racing odds. You know, people would watch these screens and it was a part of kind of British culture. And probably most infamous was its cheap holidays. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it actually helped create a whole industry in the UK around these telephone centre, you know, call centre led businesses that were effectively trading holidays you know they were smart trading businesses who knew how to buy stock or flights or find the best price and package them up and it did spawn an industry that I think in is amazing for the people it employed and what it created definitely there were times of embarrassment of perhaps we were fueling Brits abroad on the cheapest holidays (laughs) (laughs) which might have led to some of the reputation that we had in certain parts of the world but you know it also helped deliver dreams and opportunities for people. Yeah. So both those that worked in the businesses and the people who benefited from the holidays that they got. You know, I went on many a... I think the cheapest holiday I ever managed to get on Teletext was for £30 flight and accommodation to Mallorca. Wow. Insane. That is insane. Yeah. It's like Ryanair, Google, yeah. all rolled into insane. one. That's amazing. Um, and obviously Peter Kay does a fantastic sketch <laughs> all about Teletext and the frustration of it rolling on because you couldn't pause it. You couldn't hold, you had to just wait for the carousel to move. But, you know, actually working from a marketing point of view at that time, I had an interest in technology. I had this idea of how technology transported information into living rooms. And it was such a hard sell. Um, I was on the sales side at the time, but selling it to agencies and creatives and brands to this was a way to communicate was you weren't just, you know, peripheral media, but you were a technology and there was restrictions, you know, in the analog teletext days, it had only nine colours. And I was very junior at the time and certainly a mistake I made that I didn't later, but I very enthusiastically sold a teletext package of media to a very new, exciting mobile phone launch. And I was, you know, a slam dunk, great deal had been made for teletext, you know, new brand. This was It was also kind of a real cultural moment generally in the industry for Orange. Uh, and orange was the and one. You didn't color. have orange, right? We didn't. Oh have. no! And I remember oh. having to very embarrassingly phone up and go, "How problematic would be if the ads were in magenta?" <laughs> yes, <I think> so, <laughs> That's yeah. brilliant. Lesson learned. 
I love it. Bring us up to date with Google then. Uh, t- tell me a bit about your role now and what you do, because it's quite a broad role and it's quite all-encompassing. And you've, you've got reputation as well as part of your responsibility, haven't you? That's right. So at Google, I lead our brand marketing and, and reputation. So brand and reputation marketing, which is not often a kind of a common bedfellow for marketeers. You know, reputation is often handled by sort of comms and PR teams. But I think is, you know, in some respects reflects Google's attitude to how we see our users and customers and people who benefit from our products as, you know, there's a technology and product feature piece around Google and really thinking about the brand and and who we are and where we, you know, fit into people's lives. And there is then also a need for reputation. And And I say perhaps more than reputation, it's responsibility. And I'd probably swap the R for responsibility because it's really thinking very deeply around the prominence that we have as a platform and in people's lives and the changing nature of technology is to demonstrate how we are responsible and think very responsibly about our products. So everything from, you know, we lean, I lead an, an incredible program. My team drive an amazing program of education. So around six years ago, we identified that there is a digital learning gap in this country. And, you know, as a business and a mission that's so deeply ingrained at Google that is for everyone that means for everyone you know we're a free product that should be widely accessible to absolutely everyone and if one of the inhibitors to that is beyond the thought of access but is actually capability we wanted to help close that gap because we'd seen what happens when you put digital um, access information the tools into the hands of people amazing things happen you know, it's always been the way we talk about our business as being the platform. You know, we're the stage. We're not the stars. The, the magic happens when you put it in the hands of other people. So closing that gap by providing digital education has been a big part of our responsibility. And that journey over six years, we've trained um, over a million people in the UK. It started out very much in kind of broad sense. We don't teach them just Google skills. We teach them all technology. So initially, I always remember being, we used to have physical spaces around this. We now have pop-ups in places, but when we um, had some shops, I remember being up in Leeds and having a grandma who came in and she said to me, she kind of thrust her phone uh, towards me and said, can you teach me how to use WhatsApp? Because none of my kids and grandkids will talk to me. So I need to know, how. what is this thing? And, you know, we sat down and taught her how to do it. And it was amazing because for her, it opened up a whole world of communication. I always remember a local beekeeper coming in and he'd was you know struggling at the time and we know the issues of bees in the UK but he was saying you know I need to my my, some of my kind of farm staff are saying I need to know how to put these spreadsheets together and that our our team of trainers and coaching staff there helped this entrepreneur with his beekeeping and they set up these tricks and that the beauty of Google products are kind of Google docs and, and and sheets is that you can collaborate on how you use them and all of a sudden he had those that are actually looking after the hives would automatically update, you know, where that hive was and what we're doing. And he managed to not only increase production for his business, but he also attracted different types of staff into his business just by showing more digital literacy. And if I bring it up to kind of modern day, that learning program, again, our responsibility goes beyond just that closing the gap on digital learning, which is closing and obviously the COVID and the pandemic accelerated a lot of that for many. But actually there's a new kind of gap or challenge or opportunity knowing that we're all lifelong learners around AI and AI tools and actually these are now often people probably like me and you actually or 
you know, people at different points in their career who are now saying, well, I need to retrain or maybe not even retrain. I need to just improve on some of my skills. And it's wonderful to be able to, we have now, you know, courses that offer certification that are allowing people to go off and find new jobs or get promoted or build businesses. So I love that, that aspect, that alongside things like keeping kids safe online, thinking about access to arts and culture. Yeah, that, that responsibility part of my job, I feel so enthused about. Yeah. It's amazing, actually. Even down to a small thing, I, I, I was building a bike at the weekend, right, randomly, and I, I got stuck at a certain point. Of course, what did I do? I Googled precisely the amount of pressure I should apply to a particular bolt in a sensitive part of the bike. I mean, like, you know, you'd have to have bought a big, thick manual <laughs> from somewhere mm-hmm. beforehand, but then you just Google it, and then there's a YouTube video with exactly, precisely the bike and the stage I was at and the particular challenge I had it was literally this one minute 30 video going this is how you do it yeah. and it's just like wow you know it's just amazing and we'll do a bit more DIY less embarrassing <laughs> well, I'm, ter- was- <laughs> I'm terrible at DIYs so I'm literally I'm just Google everything now you know I think um, I always remember we used to love one of the things we used to think about you know I suppose the role of Google in people's lives which it plays many things but one of them is always to kind of just help you look a little bit more clever you know <laughs> just that little bit you know yes. Actually, that sense of knowing, which yeah. is helpful, which obviously I, I regularly get shamed by my children of like, did you not know that, mum? As I have to turn to Google for that answer. <laughs> Something that's always fascinated me about this is like, obviously, we as, you know, as consumers of Google, we're, we're typing in all manner of weird things and questions and whatever we've got. But from your point of view, from Google's point of view, you must have a lot of fascinating insight on the world. I mean, what insight do you get on the world? Because I guess you're almost like the world's conscience, aren't you? And what's the world thinking right now? And that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, do, do you get any surprising insights about, you know, humanity that maybe we don't know? All the time. And the hardest thing is actually mining that data because it's a little bit like what do you ask for? And the thing we did many years ago, and it's such a great tool, and I always encourage everyone, marketers and agencies and everybody, and actually just curiosity journalists particularly, is we opened up that tool. So we have a product called Google Trends, which you just can go online and you can actually have a look at what are those trending search queries. And it's a kind of graphical representation or over time of how search searches are changing or what's really top trending searches and who's the most searched for person at the moment. And you're right, it's a lovely indication of society, of culture, of interest, but you can learn so much from it and it is slightly what you are. So, you know, everything from I've seen around elections, for example, I remember, this is like casting a bit further back, but, you know, people are obsessed with how tall someone is, you know, and that would be this, you know, (laughs) probably not great because we should be more concerned with policies. But, you know, human interest is you want to know a little bit more. Yeah. I'm not sure how that sways someone's voting preference. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, also actually, which led on to a campaign, you know, I like not just seeing what people search for, which is curious. You know, I, of course, people will see the spikes you get around programming. So you could watch a TV program or a big sporting moment and you'll see a spike in search query. As people rush to go, what was that? Who was that? You know, what's their name? But also actually what people don't understand and i think in a in a world where things can feel more polarized than ever before and it feels like you've got to have an opinion and you've got to pick a side what happens if you don't understand and you don't know and actually that's one of the things we observed and i did you know i think for us it's not just what people are searching for but it's also sometimes going a bit further back to why are they searching for that so actually we were looking at say around lgbt questions and how that's evolved over the last 20 years. So questions that might have been around permission, 
you know, quite simple questions around permission, you know, can I marry a man? Can I do this? To now looking at the kind of questions, which shows a real evolution in our thinking and our attitudes and a curiosity that is there to support, how do I support my son to come out as gay? You know, which is not just necessarily about the individual, but how we want to help each other. Um, And it did lead on to some brilliant work we made with Uncommon called It's Okay to Ask. And it was an observation of the fact that we have this confessional relationship with search. Um, and at the time, we wanted to build a campaign that, you know, search is now in its in, in the way that it's used, it's utility. You know, we don't really think about the fact that we search in the way that we don't think about electricity when we turn the light on. But actually, there's a there's a reality that we have a slightly different relationship with Google in that often when we don't want to turn to someone else, we don't want to look silly because I don't want to say I don't know. I don't fully understand that. Do I really have an opinion from the weird and the wonderful to how do I fix something to actually what should I think about this is we go to Google. And so it's quite a confessional relationship that we have with it. And so without being intrusive, you can start to see patterns. And one of the patterns we'd seen and observed at that time, there was actually, you know, a lot around, you know, parents asking for support on how to support their gay children. Or around at the time, there was unfortunately a lot of racism surrounding the Euros and people, you know, there was this polarised debate and discussion around taking the knee and players that wanted to take the knee with the government taking a position on this, you know, the media taking a position on this. And it became really like you either for or against. Actually, what we observed is there was a huge number of people searching. Like they're going, why are people taking the knee? What does it mean? And that was really interesting because between the graphs, you go, hold on, there's a whole lot, there's millions of people here who don't even understand it. And so that was an opportunity to really lean in, to not just encourage people to ask those questions in a time when not only do you have to have an opinion, you're not allowed to change your opinion, but we all know the better informed we are, more likely to change an opinion. So that led on to that lovely work of It's Okay to Ask, which we'd never imagined having a voiceover. And actually, Nils being a purist uh, creative would have, honestly, I think died in a ditch at the time to, you know, if I suggested a voiceover. But we already had a relationship with Marcus Rashford. I'd been... I'd reached out to him six months before that when he'd done his amazing efforts to help get kids fed in the half-term breaks. And they'd had this incredible rush of businesses and restaurants who were going to Twitter going, you know, you can come to my restaurant and I'll feed the kids, you know, between 10 and 11 or whatever. And they didn't have a very um, simple way of being able to kind of aggregate that information. And I literally just reached out to him and said, look, I think we can help. I think our technology, we can create a map for all these businesses. So if people, because you could see the kind of friction, you know, if you go to search, you couldn't find the help that was being offered. So I wanted to help him do that. So having worked with Marcus and his team, uh, his incredible partner, um, who kind of led all his operations, Kelly, she, I was talking to her actually about a different project and she asked me what I was working on. I told her about the It's Okay Task campaign. And she's like, oh, Marcus would love that. You know, he's really passionate about people asking questions. He felt when he was younger, he didn't get to ask some of the questions he wanted to, you know, and that no one wants to be censored or, or felt shamed about not knowing and simply presented it to him and he was loved it, wanted to give, lend his voice to the campaign. And, and I love how that whole premise of it's okay to ask has continued yeah. on. You know, we've been having lots of conversation with our trans colleagues at the moment to help build better understanding around yeah. some really complex issues. Yeah, I can really imagine. Uh, for anyone watching or listening that hasn't seen the confessional, because it's, it's really quite moving, isn't it? Can you describe it for everybody just to yeah. how that exists? So we, um, and again, great fun of kind of demonstrating the breadth of questions. We actually open on a group of kids, a group of young boys of different races, and they're having some kind of conversation. And it's 
the white boy in the group comes up to the others and says, you know, Wagwan. And they're all falling about laughing. And, and you could get this sense of, like, are they teasing him? Yeah. And, the, and it goes on to a set of vignettes of curiosity. A boy looking from a bus at some people, um, Muslim people praying outside to, you know, curiosity of a neighbour, looking over, looking at Diwali celebration. A really beautiful scene in a mechanics of two older men, of one looking over to the other to recognising that the other guy was struggling but didn't really know how to talk to him. So the vignettes kind of give you a sense of the curiosity that we all have of, of sometimes a gaze or something more concerning and then leads into the search queries, you know, all to a banging track, as Nils would say, that led to then Marcus at the end saying, giving that permission. But the, the language and the, the incredible copywriting that, that Uncommon always do was gave real power to that message and that sense of, you know, it's not what we ask, it's what we do with the answers. You know, it still gives me chills now. That's really powerful, isn't it? Really mm. powerful. I wanted to ask you about that because there's some a theme that runs through a lot of the work you create is, is humanity, isn't it? And is is that an intentional thing? Because obviously, you know, you're, you're a technology platform, you know, very data driven, and yet the work you produce is incredibly rooted in kind of human truths and humanity and helping people. Really, is is that a conscious strategy? Yes, definitely. And I think for me, the um, you know, I had a commercial background and and have that commercial sense of the reality of business but there was a recognition and I think this is definitely from my own upbringing of you know challenge and struggle and hardship and a lack of inclusion you know I spent the first two-thirds of my career only being the only one you know so only person of color often the only female the only woman in in certain boardrooms but also from a social class and an upbringing that wasn't the same as everybody else's and I think the sense of power that for me storytelling gave me when I was younger you know I was obsessed about magazines you know for me it was an escapism magazine and tv and it was limited to three or four channels there was only you know certain much you could see you know I, I absorbed media as as an escape into a life that I wanted to have but that just didn't feel real you know and it does play to the fact that I was endlessly a daydreamer which I would love to go back to my teachers and go actually that served me really well <laughs> <laughs> but you know for me media didn't represent me it didn't show me a life that I lived or even I thought possible but that sense of aspiration escapism was there and as I as I felt and really understood actually that I could play a hand in some way or another whether it was through helping businesses grow and then creating jobs and opportunity for others that I hadn't seen for myself and my family or the communities I lived in or the power of marketing and media you know whether that was making content or ads or actually supporting brands and businesses that are doing that because I've worked at agencies as well that and I still you know that's why I came to work in this industry not another one because I could see the influence it had on me and I knew the influence it was having on others so I yeah definitely motivated and driven I think in the last 10-15 years that sense of certainly since I had kids and then I, you know I've got twin teenagers but it taught me that sense of responsibility that you know, actually, you go in your younger years, in your 20s and your 30s, it's all about you and it's very me, me, me. You get to a point where you actually realise it's for your kids or it's for others and the sense of the legacy in the, that you want to do. You know, I will, it's a beautiful saying, I can't remember who, who said it, but, you know, that sense that you plant flowers now that you will never see bloom. And that opportunity that knowing lightness and craft and art and design and storytelling changes minds it changes the way we live you know from sensible stuff to seatbelt to you know this girl can and motivating and finding a place so yeah I think that's been the strong thread of my work 
And for me, coming to Google was, it was the biggest platform for being able to tell that story with a product that was free, that was universal, that I really loved the mission of, this sense of democratising information. It really talked to my truth and what I wanted to do. I can almost hear nails in my head now because yeah. it's like, like don't I don't cheese. want just to sell cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, one of the things I love about him is, is is reminding us that, you know, not only are we here to sell more cheese, obviously, but um, we are also here to make a big impact on the society around us and, and leave a great legacy, which I just think is just such a challenge mm-hmm. to all of us in very privileged positions that we're in, you know, with big responsibility. Yeah. I think L- that sense of power and mm. platform is, is critical. Yeah. Because I think that's something we're all very humble and don't believe in Nils or Shaco. I know you've also had yeah. on the podcast. You know, I, I think one of the things I do very well is I keep very good company. Yes. Of, of like-minded in the sense of not an echo chamber, but like-minded in terms of mission and values. But I think that sense of power is, and, and I don't know if you like the word power, but interestingly, I'm going to like the word power because I'll talk about that in a minute. But that sense of the ability to do something you don't have to be at the top of the tree. And I think I learned that in the last 15 years that I didn't need to be at the top. I didn't need to have perhaps the assumed platforms. Actually, I was making a difference in whichever way I was. And I've really stressed that to everyone in my team and anyone I meet is that we all actually play a role. Yeah. And it's yeah. really, it's it's soul food. You're so right. You reminded me of something else. Actually, I remember when um, I think I had Nils on the show about two years ago. So fairly early on in my evolution uh, from a podcast point of view. I remember when we stopped recording at the end, he said, um, you're now a publisher. What are you going to do with it? And I was like, damn, that's a, that's a cutting. Yes, that's a perceptive question. Yeah. I didn't think of myself as a publisher. I just thought it's a hobby. I'm doing it to meet good people, have good conversations. And he was like, you know, your campaign magazine, your marketing week, you know, which voices are you going to air? You know, what, what, what difference do you want to make? Uh, he's good at those questions. He's really he? annoyingly he's Annoyingly good, isn't he? Like yeah, really exactly. I'm going to have to come up with some counter questions for <laughs> him next week. You are going to have to. Yeah. Just to like Put him on the spot, make him, him feel on edge, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about advertising, because um, I wanted to talk about a couple of great ads that, uh, that you've made recently. Um, and the first one, actually, uh, so obviously benefit the system on databases we get to see kind of all the ads everyone makes and gets look at them so we've got 380 i think google ads on now the most successful one in the uk actually which i'd love to talk to you about is the google pixel 7 launch which i think was earlier this year wasn't it i think it's just fairly recent so we'll play this looking back at old camera phones eyes look really dark really washed out emma looks great i look dreadful you can only see me teeth when I take a photo using this phone, it's more true to life. It's what we look like. I'm AJ, and I've got a Google Pixel. Now, what I lo- what I love about that is, in very, you know, in 15 seconds, you've got immediately you've got a connection with somebody. She tells a, she tells a very personal story about her, which resonates incredibly powerful, but in a way that only she could tell as well, isn't it? It's just, I mean, I couldn't possibly do an advert like her, you know what I mean? And even down to this, what I love about it is, you know, I think she's from Blackburn or something like that. And I, I, even the accent is just really authentic, isn't it? Yeah. So everything about that just screams authenticity, but just focuses on one almost like amazing feature of that phone you know that that, that that everyone go oh wow i didn't know that sort of thing but i just thought you know you're talking passionately about representation i thought it was a lovely example a very simple way of telling a story that i just wouldn't have any experience of but i can resonate because of the way she tells the story i think it's i mean the team that have worked on the pixel work have been have just had such have done an amazing job of taking technology that is incredible in its own right 
but making it really accessible. Yeah. So I mean by that, so that true tone feature, which is what AJ is talking about there, which again is one of these things that, you know, you never knew didn't exist until, you know, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, it, you know, all credit to our engineers. And it actually came, it's a wonderful story, actually. It's an engineer, one of our black engineers who noticed, you know, in his photographs and obviously was able to use it is AI technology to be able to think about the shading. So if you are of darker skin, you don't kind of disappear, as she says, you know, you only see your teeth. Yeah. And, and actually, it's not a problem that would necessarily identify or someone knew that something could be done about it. So A, you've got incredible technology. Then the power of that is saying, actually, how do you take that magic, which is what we, we have a phrase internally at Google, which is you take the magic and you take the user and you bring the two together. So you take the magic technology and then you think about the user. Now, there's some wonderful versions of the True Tone ad in, in the US that we did with Lizzo and that. But what I loved about the work here in the UK that I think the team have really lent into and is really important for how we're setting the standard for the brand here in the UK is that relatability. You know, actually, you wanted someone... Th the lovely thing about AJ, she has incredible relatability. As you say, having someone who's got a northern accent, actually yeah. someone who's prepared to laugh at themselves yeah. in a way that you say no one else could really do that, but to not make it feel awkward and, or, or in any way kind of alienated and talk to the truth of the problem in yeah. such simplicity. And I think the finding characters and stories like that, you can only really do if you have a good sense of where you're trying to get to. And that's where I think, you know, that's the gift. We have incredible technology at Google that's helped, you know, some of our accessibility products um, and we actually have built a new accessibility engineering centre at um, our King's Cross office. You know, that's not just transforming lives of those that have ability challenges and, and issues in their life. It's actually also reframing how we think about those that don't necessarily have the same access or privilege or way of living that we do. You know, I, I would never use the word normal because normal is for that individual but I think being able to take those stories and apply them in that way is really critical. And that's the most important thing is like the UK is incredibly diverse, not just in its ethnicity, but in our lifestyles, in our accents, in our interests and tastes. And I think bringing that out to the forefront is a big part of what we want to do. And it, and it also works. I mean, yeah, not being too sort of blunt about it as well, but the most successful Google ad on our database, and as I said, there's 380, is the Coda one from the US, which I, is just so moving. I wanted to play this because I think it is just very emotive, but also shows how you can kind of shine a spotlight on somebody, in this case, you know, a, a deaf couple with a child, and really tell a powerful story that I think is so moving. I'm what's called the Coda. My parents were both born deaf. I was not. When people in the hearing world learn that about me, they always want to know more. You start out your forehead and then go out with your hand. I've always had one foot in the deaf world and one in the hearing world. I translated a lot for my parents it made us closer. Now that it's been over a year since we've seen each other in person, communication is more important than ever. Especially with this guy. It's their first time being grandparents, so they don't want to miss a single moment. 
and I don't either. We can't wait for you to meet him. So emotional. I mean, I mean, not only does that help you see into someone else's life in a really powerful way, but I mean, could we have this thing called the face trace, which just shows the emotion that people are feeling as they're watching and the joy that people experience as they see the use of technology helping that family connect is really powerful. The other thing that's interesting from, from you know, Google perspective is right from the beginning, everyone knows who it is, right? So because, you know, search and even the phone is just part facilitating that, you're not going, you know, look what we're doing at Google, you know, it's just you're part of the, you know, the technology is part of the, you know, what's facilitating that, that kind of human connection. It's really powerful that, yeah. And it is where we have to lean into it sometimes, as you say, I think, which is why days like this is so helpful is, you know, we do have those really clear brand signifiers, you know, that sometimes we want to throw out the typey typey in the text because do people still do that, you know, and modern ways of doing it. But there are some kind of key signals that people immediately know where you are. It's Google ad. Okay. I get it. And actually didn't dwell too hard into explaining the technology. But, but, you know, I'll say that when I saw this ad, which was brilliantly placed as well, so great media placement, we often debate which came first, but placed in the Oscars where Coda uh, was up for an Oscar and went on to win, I think, as well. But, you know, I had never thought about that experience. You know, so we've thought about sign language products. You know, I knew, obviously, about our uh, speech-to-text products. I'd not considered enough, you know, and this is what I've heard from so many people, is which is what's beautiful about these ads in terms of building that unity, as you yeah. talked about, which is what all our ads, you know, are certainly ones I love and I hope that I continue to make are the ones that bring people closer together. And I think this is not just around, you know, oh, great, you know, people who are deaf are now seen, and that's important. It's actually seeing from all of our point of view and perspectives, and that's what's beautiful about it. It was, it was in fact, it was the moment, we, 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 in fact, Kate, who was ex, well, Apple president, Kate Waters. Uh, so she and I did a, a diversity project together, actually started about three years ago. We ended up calling it Feeling Seen. But the, the major insight was actually how diverse advertising unites us. And the really powerful insight, the obvious insight was when you're seen, you know, uh, you know, as a minority group, you feel more happiness, you feel stronger emotion, that kind of thing. That you probably expect. What we didn't expect, which was great, is that how everyone else also felt, mm-hmm. you know, proud to see other people being seen. And it was, so what we, we call it the diversity dividend, which is a little bit kind of cheap way of saying it. But the point is, is that actually by representing people really well, you actually bring everyone else with you. Yeah. And it was quite powerful. So we ended up calling it, you know, feeling seen, how diverse advertising unites a nation, mm. which obviously ITV with a big platform to, you know, you know, they, they sort of entertain the nation, yeah. but actually our diverse advertising in that nation. And Which we've is seen, great, because I have heard, unfortunately, you know, of people who say, oh, it's too diverse. You know, well, that's going to offend, you know, white middle-class people in certain parts of the UK. Yeah. And we've always talked about this, because actually I've said it's, you know, it's about, there's a uniformity of a product, or, a, a, you know, that example with Coda... You know, it doesn't matter the nationality or the representation. There are so many stories that transcend, you know, our background and culture or whatever. And that's, I think, one of the most critical things to be able to kind of deliver, which is where that authenticity is so important, because then there is a broader relatability. But I think as a business like Google and as a brand, many, many brands, I think, not just Google, many brands in the UK have a responsibility to reshape how we see society. And that means you've got to lean in a bit further. And the fact that the data proves that it's still really effective, I think, is amazing. Well, the, 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 this was almost one of the things I wanted to prove because 
um, I was hearing the same thing, right? Because obviously we test for, you know, thousands of, thousands of people a year. And I was hearing a little bit of hesitation. You know, we're going, you know, people were saying things like, well, if we represent this, you know, small minority group, are we going to alienate everybody else? And it was, it was this fear that I didn't believe was real. So I wanted to prove it. So hence why I did the study. So it was as important to me how everyone else felt as the audience represented, because I wanted to go, is this fear real? Should you worry about it or should you not? And actually what was amazing is, um, you know, unlike social media where you just, you just literally, it's like choose a side, you know, actually the data would suggest that diverse advertising unites us. The other, the interesting nuance on it actually, which is quite, uh, quite profound too, we also worked out that it's better to tell one person's story well than try and represent an entire group badly. So back to your point, the one thing we did notice is that when you tried to sort of cover everybody, actually you cover nobody. And this is what you do very well in your advertising is you kind of, this is why you can tell the story of, you know, a, a boy with two deaf parents, right? It's, it's in, I mean, it's tiny percentage. Of the, although actually having said that, 466 million people, like this is also educational isn't it? when you realise, you watch it, I go, oh, I didn't realise, you know, but, um, you know, telling one person's story well is so much more powerful than trying to, so, you know, we did find when, people try and sort of put in as many different ethnicities or groups into one ad, you sort of end up losing the power of that sort of diversity impact. So that was yeah. one that was one sort of tip we found. To yeah, that's a great lesson. And I think it's so important because I think this is, that's exactly what marketeers are, are challenged with at the moment. Mm. You know, what you, oh, right, you know, because you do get into kind of a bit of tick box diversity exactly. and or tick yeah. box issues even yeah. as well. And you're right, then you don't do any of them justice. And it yeah. just feels like you're just trying to keep everyone at bay. And I agree, you know, being able to go, and actually, I think this is going to be a real challenge for all marketeers going forward. And like we're feeling at the moment is as we, you know, we, we, the, that sense of sound, you know, you need to be everywhere and social media and social formats play into that, which are often a lot shorter. Yeah. And they don't allow the breadth of authentic storytelling. And the reality is, is that's when you do get into kind of stereotypes and tropes and tip boxes because sometimes you need just the breadth and room to be able to unpack a little bit of that authenticity. And it is, you know, we, we were talking about this yesterday, actually, with um, my team and, and some of the WACA women around just the critical importance around, you know, when people talk about having diversity in teams and production teams and casting, it's all the little things. You know, we were discussing a, a um, an ad that was being shot that was all to do with um, beautiful girls, black hair, but it was everything from like, did they have the right kind of hair products in the bathroom? Did they, you know, and those are obvious things, but yeah. sometimes they're not obvious. They're and not. I really wish, you know, we're trying to do a lot of this at Google in terms of leaning in and sharing everything we've learned and making that because I strongly believe and stand by the fact that um, inclusivity mm. and diversity are not competitive advantage. Mm. You know, that is for everyone. It's not, you know, and therefore if we learn something and yeah. I've learned so much from you today, so I want to share that with everybody and make sure we're all getting better at it. Right. But I do hope authentic portrayal, which I think is is where we focus, is like how do you really do authentic portrayal? The data and what you show is important, but you, it has to be seen and felt by those that live those lives. Yeah. Otherwise, it's counter. A hundred couldn't agree more. Authenticity is incredibly important, and and you can you can tell very quickly when something's inauthentic, can't you? I, th I think you know audiences are smarter than probably we give them. Yeah. You know <laughs> that they can detect you know the kind of inauthenticity. Yeah. Um, obviously, we focus a lot on kind of diversity and representation in the creative, but what about in in terms of media? Because we don't tend to talk much about the role of diversity in media. No, and it's interesting because you're right. You know we've. Everyone, the industry at large, has really focused on the 
the stories that are told, the people that are there, et cetera, and how do we get better representation? And I think, you know, we're still on that journey. We're still early days on that journey, just even what you're saying there today and how marketeers and decision makers are learning about actually who they cast, the stories they tell, et cetera. But when you think about reach and actually you put all that love into what you make and then who sees it? And this was something I felt very strongly about because whether it's been connected to communities where they weren't consuming the same media or maybe not in the same volume that your media planner would love you to believe. (laughs) And I think partly, you know, it's always that kind of age old, oh, but, you know, you're trying to create volume reach or can you measure it? People would abandon titles and and opportunities and platforms that do it. One of the things we did, we, we, our wonderful team, embarked on some amazing piece of research called Mirrors and Windows. And I love the idea that they call this that as well. You know, the idea that, you know, media is there to reflect who we are, but also provide a window into the homes and lives of others that we can learn about. And that's, you know, as you come back to that point of unity, that's how we get there when we have a, a better understanding. You know, I've done it actually through, I, if I reflect to myself, I've done that through music. You know, I've lived in London my entire, born and lived in London my entire life, but have managed to connect to so many different cultures. But I did that through music, you know, so, you know, jam rock is one of my favourite tunes and it reminds me of Notting Hill Carnival, but for me it was often that window into other cultures. Nowadays, and, you know, it's not just YouTube, but YouTube's a big part of this, but other social platforms that give a voice, that give the opportunity for a breadth of storytelling to so many and that can be widely accessed by anyone means that you have a real way of being able to make sure your story is seen by the people who need to see it. There'll also be a harsher judge of it. But there's an incredible opportunity around that. So I, I reflect on, say, if I take my own family, so my parents are in their 80s, they're avid YouTube users. <laughs> like, you know, probably maybe sometimes too much. But they were able to discover content that was true to what they wanted to enjoy, that they hadn't seen from India in 60 years. And so whether it's, you know, recipes or news or entertainment, they were able to find the thing that they liked to connect with. My kids, who are mixed race, have been able to connect better with their grandparents through modern day Gujarati comedians like Parle Patel. But they can also discover all the other things they like on TikTok on YouTube. And so they're able to find their own tribe in a way that, as I described when I was little, I never found that. And so I think as a marketeer, your ability to buy media that doesn't necessarily have to be fragmented, which I think is what most people feel fearful of, to go, oh, God, you know, am I ever going to build a brand and create reach? Actually, technology allows us to buy at a volume and a scale to do that. But the other thing is the creators themselves. So I always say to people, every time you're buying and investing in these platforms, every time you buy these ads on YouTube and you're working with, you don't have to work with creators and they've got to make, but you could just be buying ads that are going to appear on their content. You're putting money into their pockets and they are able to fund better creation and creativity for their storytelling, which we've seen an incredible evolution of so many of those creators. You know, take Sidemen, yeah. you know, as probably one of the most successful collective on YouTube. If you look at where they came from and where they've got to and even the sophistication of their production, they are they are one of the biggest production companies in this in this country, mm-hmm. you know, to rival the big household names of, of, of media and production that we know. But also, don't forget that the money that's going to them and flowing to them and all the people they employ and all of the ecosystem that sits up behind those creators, they're going to communities that need that yeah. economic equality. It's incredibly democratic, isn't it? Amazing. It's like o- opens up. I mean, anyone can have their own TV show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's insane, Amazing. really, isn't it? Anyone with a mic, as you are exactly, here. Exactly, yeah. All you need is a mic and a camera. And, yeah. off you go. and off you go. And I think that's, 
that is incredible. And so when you think about it from a media and the tools nowadays make it easier to buy and to measure, AI will make it even easier to think about, which is often the challenge. You know, when you think about hundreds of assets, well, actually, you need technology to help you to make assets and manage them. It doesn't replace creativity. It just creates efficiency. But it's sometimes remembering the end point of why we're doing this because I've seen the transformational difference it makes to people's lives and communities. The voices and the stories that are told that, you know, let's face it, they're not going to get commissioned by some of the biggest broadcasters in this country. But we are investing in a creative community in the UK that I hope means that we will continue to lead the world globally. Although one day they might, right, I of course. I think they will. You know, I think they will. That's the great thing about the yeah. platform is it's democratic and, you know, you can an unknown person from an unknown place can end up becoming the biggest star. And I look at, you know, Asim Chowdhury from People Just Do Nothing or Amelia de Moldenberg, and you look at actually how they've evolved. They are production companies in their own right. You know, she commissions work. She's she's being courted by, you know, film companies and the broadcast companies and everyone's, you know, and people like that and many others, they're really savvy about their audiences. You know, I've heard them say, well, I I really want to be on ITV or Channel 4 because I want them to make sure my mum sees it, (laughs) you know. But when I really want the views, I'm putting it on YouTube or TikTok or Snap, whatever, you know, because on YouTube, they can get an audience that's 10 times what they're receiving anywhere else. But there is a reality that it's not a displacement. You know, I suppose having worked in so many different technology and media throughout my 30 years of working, I've heard every single time people talk about displacement. Oh, this is the end of that. You know, every time, you know, when web came, it was going to kill every other media. You know, print was going to be gone, etc. And yeah, those industries have been changed and, and have shaped differently. The same when mobile phone came and, you know, God, every year was the year of the mobile. <laughs> it was like, what's happening? And I hear similarly now with AI. We have the same fear. We have the same concerns. But we also have to embrace the opportunity, you know, and it doesn't take in actually thinking about this wackle centenary. You hear the conversations about how people were regulating TV. When TV came, became more mainstream, people were fearful of it. They were fearful of what was this going to do and, you know, it's going to ruin our children and all this of it. Now, I don't say that development and technology and innovation doesn't have to be unmeasured and shouldn't be very strictly controlled and regulated But if we stop fear, if we allow fear to stop our imagination and our daydreaming and our innovation, we're never going to progress. So I get excited about every new bit of technology, like, you know, AR. I remember when AR first kind of came to prevalence and people were like, yeah, who's ever going to use this? You start to see now, you know, transforming sustainable fashion economies, you know, where actually the idea of trying something on is a real hindrance. But if I can try on an AR way, I'm going to rent it or I'm going to... By second you gave me a flashback actually because I I created the world's first AR drinks brand right oh, wow. so so basically it's 2013 when it's just emerging technology and if you put your phone over it was a juice uh, that I was selling um, the fruit on on the pack would explode <laughs> it was really quite cool <laughs> and in fact my business card was the coolest thing because um, I filmed myself like giving a talk about about the products and then if you put your phone over my business card. I appear like Princess Leia from Star Wars, <laughs> kind of in this like fuzzy sort Brilliant. of like you know thing. You still got them, you know. I do. Oh, I'll show you afterwards. I'd yeah, yeah, it's great. It. But um, but <laughs> no, the point was that embracing technology at that time was great because the fascinating thing I found was that every customer I went to see, I gave the business card. I never opened PowerPoint because they were yeah. just like, oh, this is amazing. So we just sat and they put, and we got chatting, and Very it was clever. great. And so they never <laughs> forgot, you know. And I think the first year, three hundred thousand people 
had interacted with the packaging and it cost me nothing because mm-hmm. it was so early days at that point that mm-hmm. the, the company that I was working with were investing in the tech for free just to prove the concept. So yeah. just goes to show. Um, talking about creators, um, mm-hmm. any top tips for anyone that's creating on YouTube, <laughs> he says? <laughs> <laughs> what are your top tips be? Well, what we've learned from others, and I think mm-hmm. that's the most critical thing because actually, as I say, these creators are often way more experienced and, and learned than we are. And we don't... Um, you know, the rules around algorithms are not shared more broadly. But actually, I kind of, I come back to some of the basics. You know, that's the beauty of marketing. I'm sure Mark Ritson and others would say this regularly. You know, there's not a lot that's changed. So when you think of a creator, you know, as a publisher, regularity and that consistency of production and publication is critical. You know, setting that expectation and knowing it. And we do live in a more demand-driven society. So frequency is important without getting kind of to the point of annoying or overwhelm. New formats, you know, so the power of things like shorts, you know, short form videos are an incredible way, not necessarily, you don't have to tell your story. I always say to people, it doesn't have to be the entire story. Think of it as a mechanic to promote what you're leading people into. But it is a piece of content in its own right. So don't do the age old as we all did before, where we would take a 30 second or a 60 second and chop it up. We now know, yeah, you can do that, but the more effective ways is, what's the thing I want to say in six seconds? And actually think about that. And so the edit you might create of a podcast in that six seconds has got to be the thing that lures you in. You know, Stephen Bartlett's a master of this. He's absolutely, you know, you look at his cut down as his, yeah. you know, and he's incredibly clickbaity. Right? He is very clickbaity. <laughs> but it works. He's going more clickbaity by the, by the <laughs> he's episode maybe at the a bit moment. too clickbaity. And everyone has to cry on his yeah. podcast as well, which I think is <laughs> yes. a shame. So I think there's a sense of like, come back to those roots of, of the production. I think the authenticity is, you know, overly polished. You know, you, you don't want to be too weak on your production because there is now a higher bar set. You know, it's almost like when... Amazon sets the standards of, you know, our expectation around deliveries. You know, you've just got to move to that space. But overproduction is not just kind of leads into people procrastinating to take too long. It actually also means that you take away from authenticity. There's a sense of too censored, too managed, et cetera. So I think that that's critical. And then the other power, which I think is really lovely, and I love seeing it more and more, is that sense of collaboration. So now and now you see it on Instagram a lot. You do see it on YouTube where you see, you know, YouTube has always been that, that creator network has always worked together. But actually more so now, people recognise they can piggyback communities. That's really powerful because it's the same sense. Like go back to your media plan, who you're trying to reach. So you don't want to reach just the people who are your customers. You want to reach beyond that. So how are you going to reach the people beyond that? Well, that's like being a creator. I know who my community is, but I'd quite like some of Amelia's community. I'd like some of yours. Okay, so what am I going to do? It's of shared interest to both. I love that. Uh, the partnership thing is so powerful. I've I, I really learned that in my career, actually, is that it, you know, if, particularly if you don't have budget, if you don't have budget, mm-hmm. partner with people that have got the customers you want, right? And then offer them something of value that, that adds value to them, that gets you in front of them. Yeah, that's huge. And I think the AI tools, which, you know, will be endlessly debated and considered and we will all move our position on that. I think the one thing personally I've seen is, you know, particularly, the you know, as I say, AI has been around a lot longer than than current news cycles would suggest. You know, so Google's been an AI business very kind of outwardly from about 2015. We've just talked about quite a lot of technology today that's all very much AI driven. But when you get into kind of the generative tools that, that's created a lot more of the news and interest now, which, you know, is, is very much kind of embraced for its excitement, but also concern, that collaborative tool, that first starting point, that first draft is what I love it for. 
And I think particularly sort of bring it full circle to our conversation about representation and diversity. I have the privilege of working with just the most incredibly talented and very well-educated individuals. It's quite daunting, I have to say. And sometimes for me, just getting started with that first draft of an email or something will take me, takes more energy than it should do. And actually, I'm probably very representative of others who are like me, you know, who may not have had the same access to education or an upbringing or cultural kind of touch points from younger years. They don't have that necessary quite at hand. And it can be a disadvantage in the workplace. You know, if I can't express myself in written communication somewhere as well as someone else, it can be a disadvantage. If the tools we have today can build just another layer of democratisation and opportunity to support, I think it's incredible. And that really excites me. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I met uh, Daniela Braga, who's the founder of Defined AI last week. She was speaking at the same conference I was at. And uh, I said, oh, how long have you been in business expecting her to you know, start last week? 20 years <laughs> I was like, I'm like oh my god I think all these people years. have been in AI and I know, thinking, what? that's how she was she was like honestly it's it's like Game of Thrones it's been winter for like 18 years <laughs> yeah. and then finally summer's arrived <laughs> so you know she's like been waiting 20 years for her moment but of course it's now all blown mm. up in a big spectacular way which is amazing um any advice for advertisers as well in terms of YouTube and how to approach it as a platform yeah definitely I think that that sense of Seeing the breadth of audience, you know, I think brands are more conscious about not just what they make in terms of the stories they tell, but who they're reaching. And actually, you know, part of this Mirrors and Windows research that we led, you know, led to a lot of agencies and marketeers speaking to, to me and the team around, I like the idea of funding creators that kind of funding communities. I like actually being able to hand over the reins a little bit, like we all hate doing that as any creative is <laughs> doing it. You know, when I say that to them, I say, but you know, someone like a, I, I, I'm using the likes of Amir and Asim or, or Sidemen, but there are many. Their production capability is, and for those audiences in that platform is way more sophisticated than anything that our, my team or other agencies can do because they've been doing it from day, from day dot. You know, they've been doing it for nearly 15 years. So being able to hand over the reins to creators is a really great way for marketeers not necessarily to make branded content because, you know, that kind of falls in and out of favour, but actually to help them build the ads. And actually that's where I think, you know, go out and look at who's in your team and who you're recruiting and really have the skills here and let go of the reins a little bit more. But I think, you know, the sense of the debate of, you know, should you have your own presence versus should you do advertising? Advertising will let you reach places that you're not necessarily going to reach. It should be a complement to your marketing plan. It's not a replacement you know, we know that, you know, you want to have the right media mix in there. It offers a 365 in every sense, not just all day, everywhere, but to all people. And then I think about it's an opportunity to do some storytelling or authentic portrayal that if you really know who your user and your customer is, it's it's a really, really embracing world to kind of drive effectiveness you know, and I think, you know, I always say to people, you don't have to abandon great marketing. You know, where's your kind of brand cues? What's the kind of, what's the stories you want to, you can have a really great call to action at the end of it. You know, you don't need to abandon all that. But what happens in the middle, let's just be a little bit freer with that. Because I think if I was critical of anything, you know, and there are some incredible and beautiful ads and we all, you know, we're all obsessed about it. I, mean, I have a lovely, my team on a, a lovely thing called the Ads Showcase once a month. And we just spend all the time looking at ads and discussing them. But there is a degree of, 
and in part technology and data, but also I think societally, of uniformity. And we're at risk of things feeling a little bit too uniform. You get out of uniformity when you put the hands of work, put your work into the hands of real people. One of the things I find fun about YouTube is that you, you've got the skip button, right? Yeah. So it's almost like the world's voting button on your creative. Yeah. Do you have a list of the least, oh, it would be the least skipped or the most skipped ads? Can you like look at... I just think we should have, data. Yeah. Like what, what, which ad has been the least I mean, skipped? That would be a great bit, wouldn't it? Maybe like a measure. Like what's your skipper... Well, add the opposite of your But you're yeah, right. You know, we always we always talked about that. And I think the other thing was interesting around that. So when people first embraced the skip, it was you know, admittedly that people were cutting down sixties and thirties, uh, or you were just leading in. And it, there was definitely a phase where people over-engineered the six, and then there was a phase of going, well, let it just run, and if it's really great, the first it's six great, seconds, they'll come. They're you know, come. Yeah. yeah. What's really smart now, and that is kind of the learnings that have come over time, is there is an art, but it's the same art of grabbing someone's attention. But you're doing it in a way, it doesn't have to be clickbait, it's just got to be really smart. And if you know who you're trying to reach and you've got something really clever as an idea, what would you put in your first six seconds of your ad? And I kind of always talk to people about that because... The, the other great thing at the moment of, with, with the YouTube advertising is that you can manage, like getting really technical about it, your sequencing. So you can manage how ads appear to somebody in a sequence. So if you're really smart, you go, well, actually, well, I will do this kind of sequence of these six-second bursts. So they're not just replaying my ads. They're telling a story, and maybe it's the cutdowns or the bits, or what's the thing you really want to land that leads them there? And that works brilliantly. I've also seen, so we've done slightly longer form pieces on our social channels, you know, sometimes like 10, 12-minute films. And, you know, most people are like, oh, I can't do a 12-minute film. And we said, well, let's just test it. What if we just ran the first six minutes of this film? So you are getting a real sense. You're not engineering it, but you're getting a sense that if those six minutes are good, they're going to stay for another six minutes. And they were more effective than anything else we've done when we've done longer form pieces. So, you know, the beauty is test and trial it. So my colleague Orlando wrote this book and he used the he used some science of the left and right hand brain and, and, and the left hand brain as he describes it is all very sort of logical, focused, narrow. So it's like, you know, uh, you get your message in early, you get your branding in early, you get your call to action in early, that's sort of thing. Right brain creative, as he describes it, is like a story that unfolds. It might have music, there's some drama, there's characters, it's you know, kind of almost a classic film or a novel. You would think, wouldn't you, that in terms of skippability, that the left brain, getting all your messages packed into those six seconds is the way to go. He demonstrated that in terms of attention, I'm meaning to check if I get this right, but it's something like after two and a half seconds, the right brain storytelling overtook yeah. the left brain. So it's really counterintuitive, but, so, but you almost need to start the story, get people hooked in those six seconds, and then they want to find out what happened. Mm. Rather than what everyone would probably think they'd do, I must squeeze it down to six seconds. You want to tease them exactly. and get them to watch more. We all want to be entertained, yeah. don't we? We, have, yeah. we forget know, this, don't we? It comes back like, to that yeah. bit of like curious beings. You know, as you were saying, yeah. <laughs> we always have that test of going, does anyone really give a shit? Mm. You know, when you walk past that poster, do they really care? You know, if you it's show this ad to someone, what do they actually best bit of advice in do? marketing ever. Yeah, you know, does anyone actually really like look at this? Because we can wang on about it, but actually yeah. show it to someone else. And I think that bit of coming back to, which is why, you know, I've loved working with Shaka. Shaka has come to the craft of advertising as not art, because I always kind of feel you can get some creatives who just want to make art and they've loathed to put a logo on anything because they just would love it to be in its purest form of art. But she's come to it as advertising in the sense of a content maker because that's where she started her journey. And I do think that sense of reminding ourselves, 
people do want to be. Whether it's entertained, informed, are curious, are engaged, they'll do it. You know, it's a gift of, I will trade my time, I'm going to give it to you because you're giving me something back. And I always say to my team, what is the gift we are giving someone? Because if you're not giving them a gift... There's no point doing it. Great. And she did brilliantly that McDonald's ad. It was amazing. Oh, it was like, I love it. It just, the, the, the arches. The attention, the arches, the eyebrows, yeah. yeah. So just curious, music, people, brilliant. Yeah, really, and, really and well And she done. uses, which you're lucky, you know, in, we certainly are at Google, but at McDonald's, you know, the, the cleverness of the colours and yeah. the post-it notes and yeah. the, you know, the, the yeah. way that the font is drawn. Genius. It's really smart because yeah. you know you've got the confidence. You don't need to show any food or a restaurant when you've got such big, well, that's the magic. Like, there's no burgers. <laughs> like, literally no burgers. I've been experimenting with a one last question. So let me throw this one at you. What would you say in your career was your biggest failure? And what did you learn? <laughs> I laugh because there's probably so many. I'm trying to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I once did a presentation called My Five Biggest Failures. Yeah. And um, everyone turned up to listen to it. Yeah, it's quite well, fun. People love, love it, I don't they? Like, couldn't agree what went more. Wrong? <laughs> I always think CVs shouldn't be written of, as a set of, a set of achievements. Yeah. It should be written as a sense of failures. Yeah, totally. I think if I had a failure, rather than it being a, a, a single campaign or story, it's actually more around change and innovation. I wish I'd embraced more. Mm. I wish I'd, and I certainly do now, and I've learned, but but even now I have to remind myself and probably don't do it enough and would definitely be my gift to all other marketeers who might listen to this, is that, you know, when we think things are really scary or stuff's changing, it's probably the time to move or embrace or do differently, whether it's an ad, yeah. whether it's a job, whatever it might be, because I think being connected, that's, that's when I'm at my happiest. Mm. You know, I visit that edge of, you know, perhaps disruption and I am very piratical. I don't really like rules and things. And innovation and technology, that's what that gives you. It gives yeah. you a sense to rewrite things. So when anything becomes, you know, kind of too formulaic or uniform, is we're all at danger of complacency. Nobody wants beige, right? Mm. You know, that's the thing. And so I think if I had a, a significant mistake, it would be the moments in my career that I can spot beige. Yeah. And I should have, you know... Jump sooner. Yeah. Stay colourful. The thing I Wearing found, what I was going to say, <laughs> she, says, pink she says in bright pink Barbie, Barbie top. There we go. I think for me, actually, like the, the, interestingly, the times of greatest failure have been the catalyst mm. always for change, yeah. actually. And you learn so much as yeah. well. Well, we forget amazing. when we're in this great season, when, you, when you're in the grit and the pain, you forget that's what builds your character it and, is. and the stuff that moves you forward. It is indeed. Brilliant. Well, that's a perfect place to end. Nishma, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Uncensored CMO. If you enjoyed this episode please do subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to this whether it's on your podcast player or youtube hit the subscribe button i'd love you to do so never miss the episode again and if you'd like to leave me a review please do i love reviews it's great to hear from you and if you want to contact me i'm over at twitter at uncensored cmo or on linkedin at john evans thanks for listening and watching <laughs>